0: This tape is a Sunday talk by Joel, titled, Reality, Karma, and Rebirth. Recorded December 10th, 1994, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon.
1: So the topic that was suggested this morning was karma and rebirth. And I'm going to add to that, reality. So we'll talk about karma, rebirth, and reality because in order to understand the ideas of karma and rebirth we have to see them in the context of reality and when I say reality I mean reality from a mystical perspective the absolute reality and of course we can never talk directly about the absolute reality so whenever I'm talking about what's absolutely real I'm getting as close an approximation as I can so having said that let's start with reality From the point of view of reality, there is no such thing as birth, there's no such thing as karma, there's no such thing as death, and there's no such thing as rebirth. Why? Because from the point of view of absolute reality, there's no one to be born, there's no one who's subject to the laws of karma, there's no one to die, and there's no one to be reborn. So why then is there such an emphasis on this whole idea of karma and rebirth, particularly in the East, or that's the way it's expressed in the East, but there's a Western equivalent to it, and that is the moral law and the idea of an afterlife, some life after death. And the moral law and um, the idea of karma are really quite equivalent. You could sum them both up by the simple little saying from the Bible, as you sow, so shall you reap. That tells you in a nutshell, that capsulizes what karma is all about and what morality is all about. So why is there then all this taught and all this working with karma or injunctions to be moral and so forth if there's no such thing from an absolute point of view? Well, in order to understand this, we have to examine how the delusion arises that there is birth, that there is death and there is rebirth, or at least an afterlife. So, we have to go right back to the beginning and see how this arises, and then we can understand how to work with it or what to do about it. The teaching that there is no self, there is no uh, one to be born, to suffer all this karma, to die, and to be reborn, and so forth, means that there is no individual entity, or ego, or soul, or psyche, or whatever you want to call it, in here in the head or in the heart or floating around someplace that is separate from the whole enchilada. (laughs) Now, this is not our experience. We might even believe that philosophically. But we walk around in the world thinking that there is some I here. You can just watch your own thoughts. There's a constant reference in your head to I. Oh, gee, I don't know if I'll like that. Oh, I think I'd like that. You want to uh, go down to Mexico? Yeah, that sounds like fun. I think I'd like that. Or maybe your reaction is, no, I don't want to go to Mexico. I'm worried about drinking the water or something. Whatever, it doesn't matter good or bad. Whenever situations are encountered, we think about it in terms of how we are going to react to that. That is our lived experience. Now, once there is the uh, sense, the feeling, uh, the belief, the conviction that there is an I separate from all the rest of the cosmos, then automatically there's a boundary set up, and then there are things outside that boundary which are not I. And so we believe, first of all, that there is some existing, independent being or entity called I, and then we look out across this boundary and we see a (laughs) world of objects and we believe that they have an independent existence. So, this is precisely the delusion that all mystical traditions, both East and West, want to deal with. They want you to get to see for yourself, to realize with a capital R, or to recognize that this is not true. And once you do, as Jesus expressed it very uh, clearly, he said, you know, if you follow my teachings, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. And the people around him said, uh, we're not slaves, what are you talking about? We've been free ever since Moses brought us out of Egypt. He said, I'm not talking about that. He said, you're all slaves to sin. You'll be free from sin. And of course, in Christianity and in Judaism, the wages of sin are suffering and death. So he's saying, you'll be free from suffering and death. And the word know that he used, know the truth, is the Greek word gnosis. This is the word that we use at the center for enlightenment, for realization or recognition. It's related directly to the word ignorance, Gnosis is G-N-O-S-I-S, and ignorance is I-G-N-O-R-A-N-C-E. So ignorance is not to know. To ignore, it means literally not to know. So there's a profound clue in here that somehow our delusion comes from ignoring a reality, ignoring the truth. This gives us a clue in our spiritual practice because it means instead of ignoring it, we should start looking for it, start noticing But in any case... Due to this ignorance, we have this belief that we are separate selves, entities. Now what happens then? That separate entity and self looks out around the world and recognizes that all objects as it sees them are impermanent. You know, your refrigerator breaks down, you drive by a, a junkyard, you see cars rusting, the light comes and goes, it's rainy and then it's sunny and so forth. Everything is impermanent, including these bodies. As you grow up, you look around when your goldfish dies and your your, uh, turtle dies and whatnot, and you begin to realize, oh, wait a minute, things die. And then maybe your grandmother dies or somebody else in their family dies, and then you begin to realize, this body is going to die. And since this I or self is somehow in this body... Or owns this body, or it's a funny relationship. You ask yourself, are you your body or do you have a body? Mm-hmm. Our language has a lot of peculiarities about this, you know? People say, Oh, I have a headache. Then mm-hmm. say, I am a headache. But in any case, we start to get frightened. A fundamental existential fear that, uh oh, if something happens mm-hmm. to this body, then maybe something's going to happen to me. And so we approach life with a strategy of trying to set up defenses to protect this body and ultimately to protect this I, whoever we think we are, from everything that's going to threaten it from our perspective and to enhance it with everything that's going to keep it healthy, keep it going, keep it happy and so forth. So we start to operate between these two dualistic extremes of desire and aversion. The things that are going to enhance the body uh, we want and the things that we feel is a threat we want to push away. And then everything that appears to us appears either as something desirable or uh, something repulsive. Uh, Those are the extremes and any range of reactions in between. It might be just mildly desirable and it might be just mildly repulsive. It doesn't have to be extreme. And right in the middle, as the Buddhists like to point out, sometimes we're just indifferent. So we are then caught in this conditioning. Now, this is what karma is all about. It's a kind of conditioning. It arises based on a delusion about the world, and the more we act on this conditioning, the more solid the conditioning becomes. And the more we act out of either desire or aversion, we get in the habit of doing it, the harder that habit is to break, so to speak. It becomes mechanical, like a computer program just running. And it leaves us without any choices in life. This is very important because in this building of the sense of I, we begin to identify with things like, well, I'm a body, and I'm thoughts, and I'm likes and dislikes.
2: Um, I'd like to know how you see the, the role that you see your your physical body
1: plays in your spiritual path. See, the question is do we have a physical body? That's an interesting question.
0: Okay. I mean,
1: This is the whole thing. Mystics want you to examine these questions. You take it for granted you have a physical body. But there are ways to examine to see if this is true or not. So, uh... Anyway, so here we are developing this conditioning. Now, this conditioning starts to set up a pattern, a pattern of behavior. And every uh, individual pattern starts to turn out a little differently.
2: Do I understand correctly that the conditioning you speak about is uh, uh, is there to protect and uh, defend the idea of I?
1: That seed idea, that yes. seed mm-hmm. sense of an eye. And then there's actually a, an identification with the conditioning itself. Ah, so it's it's like we
0: have the tiny seed and then the little walls around it. Right. All of that.
1: It's like, of a, it's like an onion, actually, is uh-huh. described in the East. You put layers and layers of this attachment and this uh, <clears throat> grasping. And as you actually seem to collect things, mm-hmm. uh, then these become you. They come inside the circle. You know, you're building this ego, this I. So this is why we have the sense that we grow in life. We're collecting more and more of these patterns and stuff that we then identify as I. Oh, I'm a person who doesn't like opera and loves movies. If you want to know who I am, you know, some people get very uh, identified with their role. You know, I'm a mother. And that can be the most important role you play. That becomes your identity. It might be identified with a job. You know, I'm an executive. Uh, It might be identified with a social class. So, you know, when the stock market crashed in the, what was it? 29. 29, thank you. There were people who committed suicide. The idea of being suddenly deprived of money, status, you know, all that was, uh, they just might as well not be alive because that's who they were. It was was like being killed. They committed suicide. So different people identify with different things. Most of us would think that's pretty pathological. But if we look inside at ourselves, we have our own pathologies, our own identifications. This gets more complicated because these patterns of behavior give rise to images of who we are. Competent people or smart people or, or good-looking people or whatever our thing is. Sensitive people, poetic people, saintly people, you know. And then we look to these images, and we then try two things. First of all, we try to live up to these images. And sometimes we live up to the images, and then we feel good, but sometimes we don't, and then we feel guilty, and we feel bad, and so forth. And we also then, in our relations with other people, are very much governed by these images, because when we feel that somebody else is threatening that image, then we feel threatened. So if you feel like, uh, oh, I don't know, that you're a sensitive person, And somebody starts saying, you know, you're so cold and you're so callous, I don't know. You know, you can feel that, a little panic and a little anxiety. (coughs) And of course, you lash back. You say, what do you mean I'm insensitive? I try to be very sensitive. I'm always trying to listen to you. It's you to, you know, and then right away, (laughs) we're off and running, right? Notice that these relationships are being governed now by attempts to defend or live up to or attack an image. If you watch in your interpersonal relationships, particularly in arguments, because that's where it's most dramatic, you will see this mechanical nature. How many of you have ever been in a relationship where you have the same argument over and over, even though it's, you know, different? (laughs) Yes. Yes. You know, one night you talk about who's going to make the salad, and then it's who took out the garbage or whatever. It's the same argument over and over. And you yourself can get a sense of the mechanical nature of this. How did I get into this? Of course, we always blame the other person. How did I get into this relationship with this jerk? (laughs) You know, And what do we do then? So we eventually perhaps get out of that relationship, and we go uh, get into another one. And the same thing happens all over again. Now this can get quite uh, subtle and quite complex, and we get into uh, the psychology of archetypes, as Jung talked about. There's a whole sort of other unconscious dimension of play going on. Okay, so we're just describing now from a mystic's point of view what happens once this uh, initial sense of a boundary is in place and how it gives rise to what we call karma. Now, the driving force of karma here in Buddhism, it's volition, individual will, self-will. If you look at the ancient Christian tradition, what is the the cause of original sin? It's self-will. It's not that Adam and Eve did the dirty deed, it's they disobeyed God. In other words, they set up a will of their own that was in contradiction to the universal will, we could say. Uh, Why are people unhappy from a Taoist perspective is because they are not in conformity, in harmony to the Tao. They don't use the idea of will here, but it's that sense of the flow and direction of things. In all mystical traditions, it's expressed quite differently, but we come down to the same idea that somehow the problem is we're trying to wheel our actions in a certain direction, and then we're always being disappointed because we can't make the world go in the direction we want it to go. Mm -hmm. So we're always running into conflicts. It might be a conflict with a thing, a material thing. It might be a conflict with your car. You might get out in the morning and you're a little late for work and you jump in your car and you turn on the ignition and nothing happens. And you go, oh, and maybe have an important meeting or something that morning. Oh, and you feel so frustrated. I've seen people kick their cars. <laughs> so the car cares, you know. Uh, more to the point, perhaps, is we get uh, this constant sense of conflict with other people. People we work with, people we're in relationships with, family members, and so forth. Because we want the the direction of the relationship to go our way. They want it to go their way. Yeah.
0: Okay, so <clears> Tao <throat> and God, we could say, is the all. How is it possible to step outside the all and have a separate world anyway? You know what I'm saying?
1: Yes, that's a good question to ask. How can it be? <laughs> How is it? So this is what leads you to look inside. It's a very good spiritual question. How is this possible?
0: So it's actually an illusion. we are actually not in the first place. It's not possible.
1: It's not possible. (laughs) You're right. This is the problem. We are trying to do something that is impossible. That's unrealistic. We want the world to be amenable to our control. And it refuses to behave that way. It sometimes seems to behave that way for a while. You have a job, and you're frustrated in the job, and you want a raise. And you go negotiate a raise, and you get the raise. And, oh, you feel like everything's going your way for a little while. But very quickly, it's going to diverge off again in this direction and that direction. So we're always grasping for something, trying to make something happen that can never really completely happen. We think that our happiness is going to uh, happen At that point, when we have everything we need and want, the great job, the great relationship, and you get all this stuff, then you're finally going to be happy. You're going to be wealthy, you're going to have a wonderful spouse, you're going to have a dog, and you're going to have a place in Hawaii, or whatever your thing is. When that finally happens, you see, when your will is done, then you're going to be happy. All your actions, you watch what motivates them, and you see that just, you know, Your choice of what restaurant to go to is based on which restaurant's going to make me happier. Is everybody following the the mechanics of this here? I mean, look in your own lives, and you can see very specifically how all this functions. no big mystery. A lot of people think karma is some sort of big mystical doctrine. It's not. It's just a description of how things work. When we operate out of self-will, demanding that the world... In whatever aspect it appears to us, whether it's another human being, whether it's a job situation, and ultimately the situation of our own embodiment, when we demand that it be according to our will, we are always going to end up suffering. We are always going to end up suffering. It's unrealistic. It's behaving unrealistically. It's not behaving in accordance with reality, and that's our problem. If you ever did get another human being to behave exactly as you wanted them to behave, you might as well not have a human being. You would destroy the very thing you you loved. You would have a robot. Do you know what I mean? It's amazing people trying to force another person to be like they want them to be, and when they finally succeed, they're bored with that person. We want everything to be the way we want it to be, and we're always disappointed, and finally we don't want this body to die. And, of course, this is going to be the biggest disappointment (laughs) around. It's going to get old, you know? No matter how many uh, uh, tummy tucks you get and stuff, you know, it's going to get old. The wrinkles are going to start to creep in, you know what I mean? You're going to start to stoop, your bones get brittle. If you last that long, your teeth fall out, your hair falls out. No, I'm serious, you know? Things start to go wrong, gallbladders and stuff. You have to have them out going into the hospital. I mean... (laughs) Nothing you can do about it. But we resist that. We resist that. And finally, the body's gonna, you know, just stop breathing and then it starts to decay and stink and smell and then the worms get in, the maggots and all that. And eventually it's gonna go back to, you know, be part of the soil and the wind and all that. So if we look at this, no wonder karma causes suffering. Karma, this idea of an individual will that can change the world in accordance with what it wants, is always going to produce a disappointment. So this isn't a question of God punishing you for being a bad little boy or girl. It is the nature of action that springs out of self-will that is based on a delusion that there is a self there in the first place. This is the whole mystical analysis of cause of our suffering. So now, what does this all have to do with rebirth? Now, I'm going to explain this from a Buddhist point of view, because I think it's the most sophisticated. If we see that our activity is a pattern, and particularly if we have some insight that there is no real self there, and I'll get to that in a moment, how that comes about, but we start to see ourselves not as being an entity, but a kind of pattern. And we can use an analogy from what happens with sound. And we'll here use materialist analysis because it's easier to understand. When I'm speaking to you, what is actually happening? First of all, I'm breathing out air, and then I'm vibrating the vocal cords in my throat. And I'm setting up a pattern, a vibration in the air. And that vibration they're like waves, moves through the air. It's not that it pushes the air. A molecule of air that's here doesn't get pushed over to Therese there as I speak. It just bobs up and down in a certain pattern. Then the next one bobs up and down, the next one bobs up and down, and finally the pattern gets to Therese. Nothing physical has been communicated here. My vocal cords haven't moved out, and even the air that's being moved isn't coming and hitting her eardrum. But this pattern is moving. The pattern comes, and it vibrates the molecules right next to an eardrum, and they strike the eardrum, and they set the eardrum vibrating. Now, it started out with vocal cords vibrating, and, and now we're at the point where eardrums are vibrating, and nothing physical has passed through here. You see what I'm talking about? Then the eardrums uh, sets the little bones, the three little bones in here. they start vibrating, and then the nerves in your brain start vibrating. Of course, nobody can ever figure out then what happens. How does it become conscious experience? But in any case, it's a good analogy for the mystic's view of what happens to this pattern after death. In other words, just because the physical body decays doesn't mean that that pattern and that delusion is going to vanish. It continues. Now we get to a problem of how to speak about how it continues and where it continues and what happens. Let's go back to this initial idea that we have, that there is a world out there and there's a self in here. And we can now bring in a little quantum mechanics here. This idea is false from a scientific point of view. At least let me put it this way. Objects, when they are not in consciousness, do not exist in any sort of physical domain. This is literally true. Here's a gong, my, f- my old favorite gong here, and this gong, according to science, is made up of molecules, which are made of atoms, which are made up of subatomic particles. There's nothing else in this gong but subatomic particles. A subatomic particle does not exist in the physical domain when you're not looking at it. It becomes a wave of probability of existing where you expect it to be, but it's only a probability. When there's billions and billions of little subatomic particles here and their probability range in space is just, you know, undetectable by the naked eye for the moments that we're not watching and so forth, it always appears to be, yes, exactly this, right where you found it. But truly speaking, it isn't. It isn't. Now, I say that because then you'll understand perhaps a little bit more why or it'll be more acceptable, what mystics say. There is no world out there. What there is, is consciousness and appearances. That's all there is. Just exactly how you experience right now. There's consciousness, awareness, right? I mean, does anybody deny that they are conscious? <laughs> be a contradiction in terms. And then all these appearances in this consciousness, aren't there? Yeah, look out there, but they're still in consciousness, right? You go out on the desert at night and you look up at the stars. Where are the stars? They're appearing in this consciousness. You have never experienced anything else but this, but consciousness and all these appearances. You think, believe, have a conviction that they exist out there someplace... But that has never been anybody's experience. Now, we also know that there are what we call altered states of consciousness. When you go to sleep at night, for instance, you dream. Has anybody here never had a dream? There are some people I've run across who never dreamed. What happens when you dream? A whole other world appears in consciousness, doesn't it? Sometimes it has... relation to this world, I mean, shadowy objects of this world will appear, sometimes it's quite different. Another world appears in consciousness. The distinction is we know when we dream, when we wake up in the morning, that all this was nothing but objects appearing in consciousness. They didn't have any reality outside of consciousness. But when we wake up here, we believe that these objects do have this reality. From mystic's point of view, they don't. So truly speaking, there is no solid, objective world to be reborn into. So we ask the question, well, am I going to come back here? You're not going to come back here because there's no here to begin with to come back to. But that pattern that is established based on ignorance and the delusion of self and will will continue to determine how you relate to whatever does appear. And things are going to continue to appear in consciousness. Just because your body died doesn't mean things aren't going to continue to appear in consciousness. So the teaching, both East and West, is the fundamental root of it. The most important thing is that this process, this mechanical law of karma, of morality, what you sow, that you shall reap, will continue as long as delusion continues. In whatever world, so to speak, you find yourself... If you believe still that you are a separate self and you start behaving in that world based on your own volition, what you like and don't like, then that suffering will continue. Now, we're talking about uh, manifestations which are just very difficult to talk about because they are other states of consciousness. Our language is not designed to deal with it. So in all religions and all spiritual traditions, they have mythologies. What's going to happen in the world after you die? They all sorts of stories to tell about, or coming back to this world, just taking us in a crude way as though this world were something ongoing. They're really trying to communicate to you that there is an end to delusion, but it doesn't come with physical death. It will continue and continue.
3: Yeah. It sounds like to me the patterns that continue to have some kind of existence after this physical body leaves... Is there really a pattern that was that was identifiable over here that moves into a, a different form of physical manifestation that is actually a bundle of identifiable patterns in your in your opinion, in your in your experience, well, if you will. In your experience, are there? I in mean my experience, I don't know. But if I were to answer from my head, I would say no.
1: What I'm saying is everything we're seeing is really nothing but an identifiable pattern without any body to it. I now, to it. Let's examine that. Let's just take that one thing here, your physical body, if you sit very quietly, you don't even have to be a formal meditator, it helps a lot, and this is one reason you develop formal meditation, and you examine your own experience of your body, you will never find a concrete object there. You will find sensations arising and passing away, coming into consciousness and going out of consciousness, constantly. If you do this for a long time, you will begin to experience your body differently. You will no longer experience it as a thing. You will experience it as a kind of vibrating pattern. When you look into it closely, there's no body there to get a hold of. You get patterns of vibration, if you like. That's what you get. Do you know what I mean? If you look into them more closely, what seemed like sort of big, like pain, you know, it's made up of finer vibrations. And these are just patterns of distinction. You know, there's a famous story about uh, a physicist trying to explain what's wrong with the old mythological ways of looking at the world. For instance, the Hindus believed that the world rested on the back of a turtle. I think it was on an elephant, and the elephant standing on something else, and that's standing on a turtle. And he said, now you see, the problem with this is we have to ask the question, what's the turtle standing on? And one person in the audience raised her hand and said, I know. And he said, you do? What? She says, yep, it's turtles all the way down.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: but it is distinctions all the way down. We can also illustrate this. I've used this before, but it's worth repeating here. Imagine, for instance, if this sock was made of wool. And uh, imagine that it was woven by a very skillful weaver who could weave the whole sock out of one thread of wool, Right. And then imagine it's woven in such a way it's like those trick knots that magicians tie that they can pull it apart and it all comes undone. Now imagine I had a little, the end of this, this string of wool, and I started to pull. And then I ended up with a string. And I asked you, what happened to the sock? Was the sock some real thing there? Was it some body? Was it some, do you know what I mean? What was the sock? It was just a form of this string. It had no other existence, yeah. So, what is the importance of the
2: pattern that is your
1: body? What is the importance of that in your spiritual? No, but I don't have a pattern. It's just a pattern in consciousness. No, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. (laughs) Now, ask yourself, what is it that you own here? Is I mean, how in what sense do you own it? These these uh, sensations arise that these patterns of sensation in consciousness, doing their thing. So, so when you uh, talk about my body, is it your body?
2: Well, I, I, see, I see you over there, <laughs> and um, you have a certain way of talking, and um, you're wearing a certain
0: dress.
2: And and how how
1: does that all fit into your individual path? Or maybe I
2: shouldn't say your. I should say um. Well. This
1: unique. What? Um, tell me what you see. <laughs> tell me what you see.
2: I I see a man.
1: No, no, but describe more, <laughs> more, more, closely than that. What do you see? Okay, let's say you see. Um, you said you mentioned the, what I'm wearing here. So you see uh, patterns of, and shapes of color, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay. And, I mean, basically all you see are patterns and shapes of color, right?
0: And your expression.
1: And it's moving, yes. Mm-hmm. So it's moving in a certain way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So that's what's arising in the visual uh, field of visual consciousness. Mm-hmm. Now, something's arising in the, in the auditory field of consciousness, right? Mm-hmm. What, what is that?
2: The
1: tonality of your voice. Right. Okay. So then you, you're experiencing sounds, right? Pattern sounds, all pattern sounds, right? Do you experience any person here, anything apart from these patterns? Now, also, I just took my, my sock off, so maybe you got a pattern in your smell. <laughs> <for> you <literally. laughs> no, really, if you analyze it, I mean, if you look into it, this is your own experience. I'm not asking you to believe or disbelieve anything. What do you mean when you say I, I experienced another person or there's another person over there? Now if we use the word just conventionally to refer to a bundle of these sensations, there's no problem with that. We don't believe there's any actual other entity there mm-hmm. except just these patterns.
2: Right, but but somehow we're we have these singular uh patterns that um that make us unique. I mean,
1: Fluctuations or. There's no question, no mystics ever deny there aren't appearances in consciousness. Mm -hmm. The the question is go find out who is the one who has this. If you have it, you can lose it. Mm -hmm. If there's no one who has it, there's no one to lose it. You see what I mean? That's freedom.
2: No, but I know all this. Okay. But but what I'm asking you is okay. Joel stands for um, a certain image or pattern of energy. How does Joel <laughs> use his patterns, in his image on his spiritual
1: path? I don't, because there's no one here to use. This is what I'm trying to, to well, you get do? you to look at.
2: How do you live? I mean, you dress, you. Supposing dress
1: there, days. okay. Supposing there is no I in there to do all this.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Not that it isn't happening. But there's no I doing it. Supposing that were the truth of the situation.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Then it would be impossible to answer your question. You see what I mean? Yes. Okay.
2: There obviously, it's there is some kind of something, some kind of Joel
1: essence. Ah, now <laughs> we're hitting. See what I said in the beginning. This conviction, there's some ego, entity, essence, some idea of a core individual, whatever you want to, however you want to say it. This is precisely what mystics say. If you go try to find that, mm-hmm. you will never find it.
2: I'm not looking for it. I'm just saying, how do you use it? How does the, how does the Joel essence perpetuate in reality?
1: Okay, let me let me put it this way. I can answer your question. I think now. I looked for it. And I never found it. So that's like saying. If you asked me, well, what does your unicorn eat? Mm-hmm. And I said, I don't have a unicorn. And you said, well, everybody has a unicorn. Now, my unicorn, I found, mm-hmm. eats barley, really likes barley. What does your unicorn eat? And I said, I- I'm sorry, but I can- <laughs> all I can tell you is I I don't have a unicorn. So I can't answer the question, what does a unicorn eat? Mm-hmm. So you're asking me, how does the Joel Essence do these things? I'm telling you, I never found a Joel Essence. How can I answer the no, question? I
2: don't mean that you that you identify
1: with the Joel essence, but that but, but you're oh. It's mind-boggling isn't it? It's like quantum Joel mechanics <laughs>
2: How do you choose your clothes?
1: <laughs> I don't
2: what? Jesus.
1: I have no idea I have no idea this is the mystery and the beauty of the world this is my whole point this is why it sounds like a very negative teaching when you say, well, go look, there is no essence there is no, but the other flip side of that is, it's all a miracle. It's all a fantastic mystery. It's all a great dance, a great display, a great art form. I and mean, it's like asking Picasso, "How did you uh, think of that?" Or a dancer, you know, it just happens. This is the way it happens, you know.
2: But here in this plane of reality, this this plane of reality is keeping keeping the energy in a certain. Wait it's not liberated.:
1: OK, okay. Let's, come, let's come to Earth a little bit here, because I'm pushing you to look for something ultimate. It is perfectly true that mystics can talk about you and I and use these terms, and it's perfectly true that they uh, recommend practices for you to do as though you had free will and so mm-hmm. forth, and, and will encourage you or scold you or whatever, and you know, like any other teacher, with a student and whatnot. But all this is based on a delusion that a teacher has to work with. Mm-hmm. The idea is, okay, you believe that you have free will and that you have to uh, fulfill your essence or whatever it is you, you know a person believes. So then, then I say, well, great, you believe that, then let's try and work with that basis. I'm not going to convince you by argument this isn't true. And let me give you some practices to do, and you go look for yourself and see if this is true. You see what I mean? So at the level of most instruction and teaching, for instance, the whole idea of karma, is extremely important, even though it doesn't really truly exist, because you're trying to get people to look at their behavior so that they can see how their own behavior is causing their own suffering. Mm -hmm. Because as long as we're blaming others out there for our suffering, we're never going to have a chance to uh, discover the truth, because we're looking in the wrong place constantly. So the whole teaching, both East and West, as you sow, so shall you reap, is a teaching now watch your behavior. Watch when you behave selfishly in a technical sense, behaving in some way to protect yourself or get something that you want or ward off something you don't want. Watch how that approach to life sets you up for disappointment, frustration, anxiety, fear, and so forth. You see? And you start to see that pattern in your own life. That's the point, really, of this teaching of karma. And the teaching of rebirth is to understand this will continue to perpetuate itself. You know, regardless of physical death, in a certain sense, physical death is happening all the time. Every sensation that arises in your body is born and dies. Okay. So the pattern of the body is made up of births and deaths, births and deaths, and then a larger pattern has a semblance of a thing that is born and dies. The whole world is nothing but birth and death from that point of view.
2: Mm-hmm. But I was just asking, what is the role of, of the body on this? spiritual?
1: The role of the body is, from this point of view, you have a body, mm-hmm. right? You have intelligence, right? So what are you going to do with it now for this time in your life? Mm-hmm. How are you going to use it? Now, you see, I'm perfectly capable of talking this way, but I'm talking now in order to impart a a a suggestion to go look at something, you see? So I would say then, I ask you, what is your role? What are you going to do with it? My advice would be to spend this life trying to discover the truth of who you are Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and be liberated from all this delusion, you see, forever. That would be my advice. Mm -hmm. Now particularly in the East, the Hindus and Buddhists, they talk about uh, that actually in this form is your primary opportunity to become liberated. And you might go to other quote planes of being after death and so forth and be lost and not even have the intelligence there to even know what to look for. And it might be countless culpas of eons of cycles of time before you come back to a human birth. So take advantage of it now, you see what I mean? That would be, from their point of view, what They would suggest you do with it. Mm -hmm. So the purpose is to discover the truth, to discover reality, to discover love. I didn't know
2: the way you were putting it before. It was like, yeah, disembodied.
1: I'm just like, so what? It's not... not Oh, no, no, because there's not so what, because there is suffering. People suffer. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I suffered. So never take this as so what. No, I mean, the whole no, teaching arises that's, that's based on people's suffering. That's how know. I
2: interpreted what you
1: were saying. Right. It's easy to do that. Look, we're trying to communicate an awful lot here in, in one little, uh, you know, morning. And this is really a topic that we can go on and on with. But I, I am trying to drive home to a certain point. We begin with all sorts of assumptions of what's true or not. We start to act on those assumptions. And it's like a, a self-fulfilling Prophecy although in this case it's not a prophecy, but it's a self-fulfilling set of assumptions. If we begin with the assumption that we are an I, then that I is going to suffer. And through it all, no matter what you do, no matter what sorts of uh, philosophies you have, or or techniques, the way you would live your life, or anything like that, this is going to continue. And at some point, what mystics always say, what is crucial to say, at some point, is just to stop and simply look into your own experience. Investigate these things that you take to be so solidly and obviously true, like I am in a body. All I'm saying is, look at that. Maybe what uh, causes our unhappiness is the fact that we are ignoring something about reality. And mystics always say, what we're ignoring is that reality isn't dualistic, it isn't I and other. In self and world, reality is one dance, if you want to speak poetically. It's just one dance. There's not not a bunch of people here in a big conflict on the dance floor. There's a lone dancer out there, and this whole world is the dance of that dancer, do you see? And since we ignore that, we don't recognize it, that's why we constantly get into trouble. But the only way that anybody is ever going to become liberated by this teaching Is not to take my word for it and anybody else's word for it. You start looking at yourself. I uh, did a little uh, one-day workshop down in Lone Pine this year in August, and it was about meditating on space and how space is an analogy for consciousness. It's really about starting to see your life as just a field of awareness and start to recognize everything as appearance in that field. And actually, it's appearance of that fuel to itself. And there was a woman who showed up, uh, and we had much the same discussion that you and I just had. She said, well, what do you mean my uh, house down the road isn't there when I'm not looking? Of course it's there. You know, we started talking like this. And then uh, I said, okay, well, wait now. I'm going to give you a set of instructions to meditate on. And then I gave everybody a set of instructions to go out and meditate on uh, exactly what your experience is, not how you think about it, not your assumptions about it, not all the intellectual stuff, but really what manifests to you directly. <clears throat> and so everybody went off for the afternoon in the beautiful Sierra Mountains and stuff, and we came back at the end of the day. And she had gotten a real new experience of things. And she said, I'm going to have to go back and really consider this. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't anything that I said that made her want to investigate this more. It was her own experience just doing this meditation. A very important teaching of the buddhas uh, that uh, I think it's Kornfelder, one of them, tells on one of his videotapes. And he always says, now listen carefully because this is a teaching that you can get enlightened from <laughs> just hearing this <laughs> teaching. A man came to the Buddha while he was uh, in the village begging his meal in the morning. The Buddhist monks used to go around in the morning beg. And then in the afternoon they'd go back to their little camp and they'd meditate and stuff. <clears throat> and he said to the Buddha, I want a teaching. Uh, I live in fear and suffering and so forth. And the Buddha said, well, come back afternoon to our camp and I'll give you, you know, teaching. And the man said, how can you say that to me? I might die before that, do you know what I mean? And I'm suffering, I want liberation. And the Buddha said, well, you know, it's very difficult to give you one teaching that's going to liberate you. And he said, you tell me the truth and I will be liberated. And so finally he wouldn't be put off. And the Buddha said, okay, listen carefully. He said, in what is seen, there's nothing but what is seen in what is heard, there is nothing but what is heard. In what is smelled, there is nothing but what is smelled. In what is tasted, there is nothing but what is tasted. In what is felt, there is nothing but what is felt. And in what is thought, there is nothing but what is thought. And the man's mind opened up and he was liberated. Now, this is a wonderful teaching because you can test this very directly in your experience. Just check out, see if the Buddha's right. Watch in your visual field. Is there anything else but what is actually there? Do you know? And then you just listen. Just stay in your auditory field. Is there anything else in there but what is in there? and throughout the rest of the senses. And finally, the most difficult one is to watch the mind. All sorts of ideas arise. Contradictory ideas. Paradoxical ideas. But they are all simply ideas. They're imaginary. That's all there is. These are the manifestations of consciousness. There is nothing more there. There are no cells, there are no chairs, there are no clocks, there are no any of these things. This is when we confuse the content of an idea projected out on the world and then take it to be real. And what we discover is there's nothing wrong with the world. In a certain sense, we don't have a task. I mean, in a relative sense, we do. The task is to come here and find out the truth and be liberated. But the paradox is the liberation comes from finding out there was nothing wrong in the first place. You know, when God made the world, he said, "Kotov," it's good. And it's always been good. And it always will be good. If we could but see it right.
0: Yeah. Um, Love. (laughs) Love. Well, you said it's not a disembodied... And you mentioned the word love. Mm. Um, So that fits in here
1: somewhere, I know (laughs) it (laughs) does. If you think about what a loving person's like, I mean, some of the qualities. For instance, a loving person, truly a loving person, loves you the way that you are, right? Accepts you for what you are, right? Mm -hmm. Doesn't reject you or doesn't want you to be the way they want you to be. Loves you just as you are, as you, you know, right? Is that a good... Way to put well,
0: it. I'm thinking of parents, though, so and there's a lot of guidance involved in this acceptance. Right. So it's more complicated than just whatever you do is okay. But oh, it's yes. Oh, unconditional no. Conditional love to it, but it's more elaborate than.
1: Sure, but look, all our love under delusion is tainted by a little self interest. Yeah. But if you thought of pure love, what that would be like. There's a total acceptance in the beginning. Now, if you look at the way consciousness is, and it totally accepts everything that arises in it. Doesn't judge anything. Doesn't push anything away. Doesn't reject anything. You see what I mean? And in that space of total acceptance, you start to see other qualities that we associate with love, like freedom and beauty and vibrancy. Just in the way all this stuff is appearing. You know, consciousness is a little like a mirror. You can be an ugly person or a good-looking person. The mirror doesn't only reflect images of good-looking people and refuses to reflect images of bad-looking people. Well, consciousness is like that. That's why people say, particularly in the Western tradition, in Christianity, God is love. It's not God loves. There's no being up there who loves you. God is that quality of of absolute
0: acceptance.
1: Now, to come into contact with that kind of purity, that kind of um, absolute selflessness, which is what that is, you know, is in itself purifying.
0: <laughs>
1: so the nature of love, a spiritual love, the absolute nature of it, it, has nothing to do with any big emotional displays or anything like that. It is this complete embrace. All these things are appearing in consciousness, like I said, like a big dance, spontaneously, openly. Consciousness doesn't reject any. Consciousness doesn't put obstacles in the way of any of this appearing. And look at the vibrancy of it. Look at the colors. Look at all the multiple different sorts of patterns. Endless, infinite display. It doesn't ask, what are you doing here? Only a human being would ask, what am I doing here? God doesn't say, what are you doing here, young woman?
0: But there is some kind of element of discernment. I mean, it's better that I... um, It's better to feed you than shoot you <laughs> right? I mean there's some element of like, it's not just we had this sort of conversation before everything is everything so it really doesn't matter whether I'm a junkie or a nurse in not most really. cases it's better to
1: feed me than to shoot me. in most cases, <laughs> no why? because it's the, a, a selfless thing to do the moral law works like this it's almost a mathematical ratio the more selfish you are, the more you're going to suffer the less selfish you are, the more you're going to alleviate suffering. Your suffering, other people's suffering, but your suffering. And ultimately, to be selfless is no suffering. It's the elimination of suffering completely. So, this is how you can start to live your life in accordance with the law of karma or with the moral law. As you sow, so shall you reap. If you go around sowing hostility, shooting people, and this and that, you're going to reap a bad harvest. If you go around sowing love and feeding people and compassion, you're going to reap a good harvest. It's not all that, uh, you know.
0: And so the selflessness, discernment, and uh, the end of suffering are all synonymous.
1: Of course. This is all works together. This is why a spiritual path is, part of it is an investigation, an inquiry, to find the truth. The other part of it is love and compassion. These are the two great pillars of all spiritual practices, wisdom and compassion. Love and truth and you need both
0: mm-hmm. and selflessness is the foundation
1: that's that's what it's all about yeah.
3: that's not to deny the role of the relative in the absolute that is to say that I might go out and do an action which is a, quote a good action and my Iness might be in that action you know and there's nothing inappropriate or wrong about that it's just that when something happens that to that concept of the I-ness, it sort of uh, creates a, a, a point of suffering somehow. Let's suppose I love you in a relative sense of that word, and you say, I'm sorry, I don't feel the same way about you in that relative sense. All of a sudden, the I is hurt. Big suffering, isn't Big it? Big suffering. Big suffering. Big time. The <laughs> selfless place would be to be able to sit with the pain of what you just said and simply experience the pain of what you said. No suffering. Yeah, exactly. I'm just experiencing it. There is no I in that. But we all live in the relative. We all have the dynamic of living in the context of the paradox of the absolute. No, no, no,
1: no. But I, 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 <laughs> this is like classical and quantum mechanics. We don't live in the relative. We think we live in the relative.
3: Uh, if no, we, like, think we live in the relative, it's tantamount to might as well living. What? Well, okay, I, that's <laughs> why. That's why delusion is, is. You know, it's like if you, Joel, had your realization. Something transformed you, and you came back into this world of the relative, and there was no more suffering. That's not to say that you didn't experience pain, or joy, or apathy, or even at some point, boredom. But the point of the matter is that the transformation that you came back with into the relative world with allowed you to simply experience life gee, well, how do you put it that way? <laughs> is that Well, it's the
1: truth, yeah. well, it's th- a true, look, it's the truth except for one thing. There is, is no I. I mean, the realization there is, no. is there is no I. So it's not like I came back or went anywhere. I never not did either. anything. The realization <laughs> is, what are you, dummy? You, you know, there's no one here doing anything. I'm <laughs> not going to put you <laughs> in a box. But, okay. <laughs> but no, no, but, uh, you know, this is as, as a relative expression, it's not bad. But truly speaking, there's no I to leave or come or go or anything. That is the realization. It's a... In that sense, a real judo trick. But this is true. You don't go to any other plane of existence. It's right here. This is why the Buddha said, look, right now, just observe. Just stop ignoring this. Nirvana is not other than samsara. Jesus says at the end of the Gospel of Thomas, you know, the kingdom of God is spread upon the earth and people just don't see it. They don't see it. They ignore it. Literally, you know. This is it. This is paradise right here. So it's a question here about seeing something. You know. Now, we're always going to have language. Language is always going to divide up the world. And there's absolutely nothing wrong with that as long as we are not fooled by what's happening here, that it's imaginary. There's a technical word for it, as long as we don't reify our own imaginations. Reify to means to make real, to then think it's solid, you know? So. In that sense, yes, we'll always live in a, a playful, relative, fictional world. But that's part of the beauty and joy of it, you know what I mean? It's not solid and concrete. This is why different cultures have vastly different experiences of the world. This is why in uh, the Ojibwa Indians, to them, the world is a shifting pattern of form with these spirit forces behind it. There aren't solid objects. You know, human beings change into wolves. You know, there's shape-shifting and all this going on, and, and other animals can change into human beings, and, you know, wow, to experience in that world, that's much, much different than this world. Why not go into that world for a while, any world you want to live in for a while? There is no real world to come back to. This itself is part of the play of the manifestation of forms. So it's very valuable to talk about the absolute and the relative because it, then you don't get lost in where you stand with the teaching. Is the teacher talking at a relative level or the absolute level? Do you know what I mean? Otherwise, it's very confusing. The teacher comes and says, well, there is no self and then says, you know what I suggest to you, Galen? It sounds like he's talking to me as though I a self. You know, Well, there's a relative and absolute form of teaching here. But even the distinction between the relative and the absolute is only relative. It doesn't truly exist. So the
0: Relative reality is not oxymoron more um, than you're saying because there is no.
1: You know, I never knew reality. what that word means. I keep reading on the page. What does it mean?
0: <laughs> like jumbo shrimp. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Relative reality is like jumbo Perfect. shrimp. I like that. <laughs> can we print that out? We'll put up in
0: the library. <laughs> so that's the only bone to pick there. It's not that we don't have a functional thing where I can call you Therese and I can call you Joe. We agree to that. But it's not a reality in any sense of the words. It's a game. and the real reality, there is no self. There never was and there never will be, no It's like, what you
1: call it. It's <laughs> like those surveyors out there that I mentioned yeah, earlier, yeah, playing a yeah. game that the Earth yeah. is flat. And they understand each other perfectly, and it works very well. And, you know, it would be very cumbersome to start taking the curvature of the Earth when you're surveying an acre of land, you know, and it would almost be impossible. Uh, but nevertheless, there is no flat Earth.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and they know the difference, they know how to apply this to their task, but they don't carry it with them after their task is done. Think how cumbersome it would be if we were all named God. I mean, one way you could look at it, say, Well, we're all God, but you know, I, it would get we'd have to start saying, Well, God one, God two, we'd have to find other ways to make distinctions, you know. How many people on the planet Earth, you know, God 4,891 billion, we like one of those uh numbers of the debt, you know, the national debt. <laughs> so it's easier, and it's kind of nice to have, you know, it's more inventive to have different sorts of names. That's fun. But that name doesn't refer to anyone there. You know, it's distinctions all the way down. <laughs> You're never going to come to uh, anything other than consciousness and appearances. Mm-hmm. And even that is short of the truth. You know, that even has a duality, consciousness and appearances, mm-hmm. as though consciousness and appearances it's just what is all right let's bring the formal part of the morning to a close
3: and uh, you're welcome to stay around and have some tea and uh, check out the library